Welcome to the SPS Digital Learning Hour. Brought to you by the Digital Learning and Assessment Department. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Mike Thomas. And I'm Suzanne Zargis. We're bringing you the latest news in Springfield Public Schools in regards to technology, along with inspiring interviews from teachers who are using technology in the classroom. We'll also inform you of latest updates, practices, and news as it pertains to our district. Whether you are new to using technology in the classroom or are a seasoned vet, we are here to help. Coming up next, Hot Takes. In case you missed it, the latest blog post is up and we discussed the difference between Sway and PowerPoint. So last week we talked about Sway, what it is, how to use it. This week we compare the two because they are both presenting softwares. So if you're wondering how to use the tools in your classroom, Sway on over to the blog while you listen to us. In case you missed it, the latest update with Brightspace is out and you can now post multiple discussions to multiple discussion boards. And also, the HTML editor has improved pasting functions into quizzes. You can see more detail on this and much more if you go to the Brightspace community. This is located at community.brightspace.com. If you've been there in the past, you'll notice in June that it looks a little bit different. Brightspace is offering a variety of enhancements that they're confident will improve your community experience. If you have not been there yet, know that when you visit the community, there is an option to enter your ideas for improvements in what they call the pie product idea exchange your voice is heard any improvements that you suggest someone will see and others can vote to increase the chances of your change being implemented check it out one of my pie updates has currently 21 people voting for it so hopefully it's going to get up the chain i'll vote for it mike all right so in case you missed it both of us are on twitter i am at mike sps dla and suzanne is at suzanne sps dla that's where we post a lot of articles as we're going along throughout the week we might not talk about them during hot takes but if we read something that we're like oh this is fantastic we'll put it out there to you That's it for In Case You Missed It. Coming up next, Hot Takes. Welcome back. Today we are going to jump into our hot takes. My hot take actually was a bunch of articles. I think I might have overwhelmed Suzanne just a little bit with it, but I was super excited about it because it came back to when I was teaching. We used to do this thing called NaNoWriMo. NaNo what? NaNoWriMo, or in other words, National Novel Writing Month. And so this was in November, so it was shortly after the school year began, but my first few years of teaching, we did this a lot. And one of the neat things that came out of it was 
the fact that it helped encourage the students to become writers because they could write about what they wanted. Um, and another thing that they really liked was that people who actually participated in NaNoWriMo became published authors. And so if you've ever heard of the book The Night Circus or Water for Elephants or Cinder, they all started from a NaNoWriMo project. So NaNoWriMo is for the entire month of November, you're supposed to write and you're supposed to write a lot. And for the adults, your goal is 50,000 words, which may seem like a lot. That's about 20 to 30 pages usually, depending on your font size and all of that. It could be a lot more. It could be a lot less. For students, you could actually set the goal for them. You can set a 5,000 word goal, which was the equivalent of about a three to five page story, which is what I did when I first did it. And so what I learned from this project was that the first year I didn't did it, I didn't do as much prep work beforehand because I'm like, oh, it's like, again, being a first year teacher, you're like, oh, students can write. Writing's fun. No. It wasn't as successful the first year. The second year, on the other hand, I went in a little bit more prepared. We, NaNoWriMo has a whole Common Core curriculum that they use and that they give you for free, which is great when you're a teacher, resources being free, especially good ones. And so we went through the whole curriculum, um, which focused on plot and character development, rising action, setting, the whole gamut. Okay, wait, Mike. So if can you clarify this for me? So students mm. write for an entire month. Does that mean all day long, every day of the month of November or whichever month they choose? This is what they do. Only that. No, no, no. Oh, no. So this was during our writing time. So when I first started, we had an hour for reading, an hour for writing, an hour for math, hour for science, hour for social studies, and then whatever special the students had was in between along with lunch and recess. So during our hour block of writing, we would do a short mini lesson and then they would get about, I tried my best to always make sure they had at least 40 minutes to write. And so during that time, they would be writing or they would be sending um, parts of their stories back and forth to each other. At this point, we were using Edmodo and we were using, so they would just post in Edmodo back and forth to each other their stories and ask for help and ideas. And we would even take breaks and focus on just different aspects of story writing. So then over the course of the month, they have a story and then we put it down for a few months and we came back to it to work on more of our grammar and our editing. And which is one of the suggestions they make in the curriculum is the moment you're done, celebrate the fact that you accomplished something. You became a novelist. And so in other writing lessons that I had done, we talked about how for some books, some authors had like 50 revisions or 20 revisions. So they saw that it's like a constant work in progress with their writing. I'm going to back up again, Mike. <laughs> how in the world did you motivate your students to write when the goal was set for 20,000 words or 10,000 words or 5,000 words. How do you, how does a student grasp that? How can they see how tangible that is? Or where did they come up with their ideas? I, I'm still amazed that mm -hmm. students could write so much. So I know what we did, and this correlates to a couple of the articles that I sent you. We, one of the 10. Yes. <laughs> um, we set up 
um, for the month of September and October, we went through the entire curriculum, which included having time to create um, outlines, time to create characters, a time to create plot ideas. So we had our entire room was full of white chart paper with different titles with different aspects of story writing on them. So if someone got stuck, we would be like, why don't you have your character do a flash forward into the future? And so like we talked with the fifth graders, they already came in with a lot of writing knowledge to begin with. So we just kind of built upon what they already knew, gave them a whole bunch of time to create ideas and go through the process. And this is where the curriculum really comes in handy because to create your antagonist, there is a 25 page, not 25 page, 25 question survey that you have to answer about your character. And so they really got to see like, my character doesn't have to like pizza. Like something as mundane as that thought, instead of trying to come up with like who their character is, by answering all these questions, they had a character fully fleshed out. Now, whether they used it in the story or not, completely different, but they had in their head a way to write a way to think about their story and how they want to proceed. So we did a lot of outlining. We um, spent a lot of time looking at good authors and just examples of books. And we took stuff that they were doing from their reading time because we did a lot of novel studies to teach all of our reading skills at the school I was at. And so we would use those kind of books and help them see that they can become an author and that it's not an overnight thing. I think that was another thing that we had to stress was they thought, oh my gosh, I got to write 5,000 words today. And that really wasn't the reality. Right. And so like being like, we have this many days and we even took it into our math class being like, so if we, there is 20 days of school in November, I can't remember how many it was at that time because Thanksgiving was at like the end of the week. So there's extra days. Um, we took the number of words that they had and we did some division with it because in fifth grade division is a skill that they got to work on. It's one of the standards. And so we would divide up the number of words they needed by the number of days. And then they would see that, oh, it's not so bad. And so like, I think it, I'm trying to remember what one of the students, because of differentiating out, knowing that some students could already write well and would write a lot for a very simple answer. Those students ended up with more words in their word goal. But I think the average student for the month of November had to write 50 to 100 words, which is... That's much more the, manageable. That's like two paragraphs. Right. And right. so once they saw that, they're like, oh... Or they would get to the point where like, I'm done. I'm like, well, you're writing a story. You're not done yet. Right. Listening to, to the whole process, Mike, I immediately have several ideas as to how Brightspace could facilitate this whole process. Now, when you were teaching and doing this project with your students, that was before we had Brightspace in the district. How would you do things differently today if you were back in the classroom and you had Brightspace available to you? I can immediately mm -hmm. think of 
some pieces when you were talking about the students bouncing ideas back and forth or getting feedback from each other. They could do that through a discussion group. Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that jumps out is I would set up, if I were doing it differently, it would be a discussion group based on a particular skill so or a particular aspect of the story. So if they're looking for character development, that would be its own discussion board and people would post there and respond there. And um, we would do that for plot development. Hey, I need someone to conference with me real quick. A lot of times we would take, instead of a mini lesson, we would take that 15 minutes or so and we'd do speed dating with our writing. And And I think another thing that was important was that they saw me doing it too. And we had a chart up on the wall with stickers that when you hit 10% of your goal, everybody like stood up and did like finger snaps. Um, I think it was 25% of your, like 10% is the first step. It's like, hey, I'm making progress. So then 25, 50, 75, we would, there would be a like stand up clap, read us a part of your story type, like rah, rah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was never a cheerleader. So no, the f- but <laughs> in Brightspace, I'd be able to issue badges when you reach certain points. Right. Instead of putting a little sticker on the wall, because that's what we had. Mm-hmm. Um. So those are a few aspects. I know Brightspace has some features. Also, Microsoft Office has some features. So you could share the writing back and forth with each other so that it, instead of waiting for that day to have the speed dating, because we did it once a week, instead of waiting, if you were really stuck on something, you could just send it off. You can like add five people to, um, you could share it through Microsoft Word. You can add like five students with a little message saying, hey, check this out. I need some help I'm stuck. Love it. And so it helped get over the writer's block aspect of it. And I think it would it would just ease the flow of the entire project. You'd never have any students waiting for the next step. As right. long as you you trained them well into all the steps of Microsoft and Brightspace. Yeah, definitely. They could be writing novels that are 50,000 words instead of just They could. I had one student their goal was 10,000 words and they ended up um, by the end of the month, having 25,622. Wow. Which, and this was a person who was like, I don't really like to write. I don't know what to write about. And they kind of just started. I think what was really great about the project, and the main article that brought this up was from Ed, Edtopia, called the NaNoWriMo Project, The Birth of the Student Novelist. And the students were empowered. They were empowered to make choices for their characters. They were empowered to have a dragon fly in if they wanted to, even though they know there's no such thing as dragons, as far as we know. Um, But they could have it happen, or they could... So some of the stories were, like, I would almost say fan fiction. It's like they would take a collaboration of their favorite shows on TV and write characters that were based on those shows and try to interweave their own stories into it. Right, because didn't you mention that you, um, in order to help them get their ideas for their stories, you had collections of mm-hmm. books that they you knew they were interested in. Right, and uh, we also, in one of our like brainstorming sessions back in like the October time, we talked about like our favorite movies and why they were our favorite movies. So that was less of a poster as more of like a journal entry, mm-hmm. being like, what is your favorite movie and why... Is it your favorite movie? What about it? So then they had all these like plot ideas and or character thoughts. Like, oh, I really liked the Hunger Games because she's a really strong 
independent person and that's who I think I am and that's who I want my character to be. So they've had some self-identifying things into their stories because as we all know, when we write something for fiction, we include a part of ourselves. And so for them, it was really empowering. And I really believe because I saw from what I saw that year, from the beginning of the year with ANET, because um, the school I was at, while not in Springfield, was, or it, well, it was in Springfield, it wasn't part of the school district. I saw for that year, those students, their scores over the course of the year went up. And I really do credit this project as being like the catalyst for the idea that they could do anything, that they could persevere through, that if something was a struggle, that they could fight through it. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry to interrupt. That's a that's a huge part, right? That that they know when they're writing this novel or this draft of a novel to know from the beginning that it's not going to be perfect first time through. That it's going to take many revisions, many um, criticisms, constructive criticisms and revisions for them to get it to be perfect. And I liked in one of the many articles that you gave me. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> um, I know. A book that became a bestseller. The author actually said that the first draft of that book, I, I think, ended up in the trash. You know, they, they wrote it, they put it down, and when they came back to it, they said, no, you know what, this is not right, this is not good, I'm going to start all over. And it was that second attempt, or it might have even been the fourth attempt, that ended up being the bestseller. So I think it's a great example for students to have that they can write and write and write and write and then come back to it a little bit later and see how much better it could be. Yeah, and taking that time to actually come back to it is important. It's not part of November. As you know, we have a lot of writing standards. We have to cover multiple types of writing. Personal narrative, which is what a novel can be, is not necessarily the entire year. And so we came, we definitely made sure that we came back to it and that we like looked at it with fresh eyes too, because it's a lot. And the students were like, they, even though they still wanted to keep writing after the fact, and they like, even when they met their goal, they wanted to keep writing. Cause they're like, Oh, I have another idea for my character. Um, there was this time of, a, we spent a couple of months of slowing down because uh, I had to like convince them like there are other styles of writing that we have to focus on too, not just this. But there were students who would continue privately working on it. They would put it on a thumb drive and take it home and work on it at their home computer and then put it back on a thumb drive and take it back. And this is where I see like Office being a great tool now is you don't need to put it on a thumb drive. You just need to save it to your OneDrive, log in at home. And you can open it. Right. And can you imagine in the old days where you actually had to write with paper and pencil? That would mm -hmm. just be exhausting. I, I, I have a bump on my finger from all the writing I did <laughs> <laughs> growing up. I don't think you could get students as excited about writing if it weren't for the technology that we have today. I don't know about that. All right. I take it back. But it's easier, right? It it's is easier. easier to meet these larger projects like this. And it's so. easier for the teacher. It's definitely easier for the teacher. I used to have students keep a journal. Uh, we would correspond once a week about what they were reading. And because I was a teacher and I liked having books in my classroom that the students, that I know what they're about. So I know that they're right for the students. 
I would keep a journal. We would journal back and forth about what they were reading because most of the time they read books out of the classroom. And so that was a harrowing process sometimes because if I was out sick for one day or heaven forbid a couple of days in a row and I come back in, I've got 12 journals I have to respond to. And some of the students were like, good, just get it back to me on Monday. Other students were like, what did you, what did you think of what I wrote? I'm like, I, I, <laughs> I just got back. <laughs> and so I can see like with the technology, like it'd be so much easier to do that kind of writing. Just like with the technology, it's so much easier to write 5,000 words because you're right. not sitting there going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, <laughs> eight, nine, ten. And get to the end of the line and write 18, 16, and then I have to add them all up. It became a great math lesson. Don't get me wrong, but... <laughs> but much easier to just do word count and know exactly how many words you yeah, have. Yeah, considering Microsoft tells you at the bottom of the page anyway. Exactly, exactly. And I'm thinking, too, not that you want to do this if you're homesick, but if the students had submitted their writing for the day via Dropbox and Brightspace, mm-hmm. you could easily log on at any time of the day to see what they had done. Yeah, and... That would have been actually a lot nicer because then I wouldn't come back to like a stack full of work that right? I have to go through and grade. And you could it, offer feedback right within Brightspace. And then even at that point, the students, like if I did it, like say the students submitted it at 1030, at 1045, I could have read it, submitted comments back to them. And if they're still in writing, they would look at it and say, oh, and then they'd be like, Mr. Thomas is watching us. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you said it in in a way that makes it not as positive as I was going to say, but I know my daughter didn't understand how her professor in college sent an email at midnight telling them which (laughs) textbook to buy and what his expectations were. So I had to explain to her intelligent agents, which Mm -hmm. uh, our listeners hopefully know is available within Brightspace. But um, I think that the fact that students could receive feedback at Mm -hmm. any time of the night. Not that we want all our teachers to be working at 10 o'clock at night, but for those teachers who do, I think that's such a motivator for students that they know Mm -hmm. that our teachers do care about them and do care about their work. And yes, we do log on at 10 o'clock at night occasionally. and, (laughs) uh, And I think that has a huge effect on students. Yeah. And so then when it comes back to a project like this, with it being such a looks daunting to them knowing that their teacher is also going through it or is checking up on not checking up on them as to like gotcha you weren't doing what you were supposed to but checking up on them to hey i read this this was really awesome can we what do you think about doing this with your character or like asking those really good probing questions which is another time like when you're doing the speed dating part of the writing where you share out parts of your writing i even shared out parts of my writing because If I was having the students take on a huge project like this, I mean, one, it would be really boring for me to just walk around the room, look over shoulders and whisper things in people's ears. And two, I really like to write. I didn't when I first started teaching after the first year of doing this project. I'm like, oh, I like to write. This is fun. For me, like it was also time for me to just write and they saw me doing it and me being engaged with them on their level of what we were doing. It made like classroom relation, classroom management stuff, so much easier because if they saw that I was willing to buy into it, they were willing to buy into it, even my hardest customers. Right. I mean, it it speaks to uh, the importance of having a relationship um, with your students. That didn't really come out right, but (laughs) (laughs) 
to know, for your students to know that you care about their work. There's so many things that they learn as part of this project. Part of it, digital citizenship, if they're offering mm-hmm. feedback to each other online, they need to learn how to offer suggestions and or criticisms in a way that is not going to make the person receiving that upset. Mm-hmm. And um, it also gives them an opportunity to really be a star. I remember in one of the articles, Mike, uh, the teacher who brought their kids to the library or a bookstore, mm-hmm. and they could read their stories to people outside of their classroom. Yeah, having a, an authentic project like this encourages um, like a good presentation. Not just, a, I'm going to stand in front of the room now by myself, read my story, and then go sit down. Mm-hmm. But like a real one. I have friends who are teachers who have done things like a, a poetry night at their um, in their classroom where they like brought in floor lamps and tablecloths and had little snacks and they did like a whole like poetry reading, um, which again, it comes back to like being an authentic project. Something like this is authentic. Like you have to have some sort of presentation at the end because projects that go without a, without some sort of celebration at the end, students will, even though they put in so much work and they really loved it, they would be like, oh, this doesn't really mean that much. And they kind of push it aside. So one of the articles, the uh, the author talked about taking their students to Barnes & Noble for three nights in a row so that they could have the opportunity to do a reading. So it wasn't just their class and their parents, but it was real people. They have no clue who they are, could be there listening. And who knows, maybe there's literary agents there being like, oh, this person can really write. Exactly. So Exactly. When you think of... The reach that we have with technology today, students are no longer sitting in a classroom thinking, oh, the only one who's going to read this is my teacher, or the only people who are going to hear it are my my fellow students, and I don't really, you know, I'm not really motivated for them to hear it. But to know that they have such a wider audience, they could Skype with another classroom across the district, they could Skype with another classroom across the country, I think... With all the social media that mm-hmm. kids are involved in today, they want the world to see them. They they have much higher goals and dreams that mm-hmm. are accessible than I did when I was their mm-hmm. age, right? They don't think twice about saying, oh, I could read my story to someone in Japan and get mm-hmm. feedback from them. I think that's very empowering and they don't they don't think twice about it. They're like, yeah. yeah, I can do that. I can do that. So, and that's where like this project, it's really great. Again, for our listeners, the show notes will have all the links that I sent Suzanne. All of them. All of them. And I will even make sure that's the actual website for the National Novel Writers Month is there too, because there's free curriculum. One of the years I bought pins, I bought the, I bought their poster, I bought little like writer pins and pencils and all sorts of like little things that I could give away as like goal reaching items. And then at the end, we always had a party, so I can't give you that. But, um, so again, it's National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo. It's a fantastic writing program. They, the curriculum is by far one of the best that I've seen. And I, in my time teaching for teaching personal narrative on such a deep, deep level.
right, my hot take this week is from a Scholastic article I read. It's called, Is Blended Learning Elementary? And this talks about using technology in a kindergarten classroom. So that jumped out at me right away. Yeah, because I can think of a number of times I've been around kindergarten teachers being like, they don't know how to turn it on. <laughs> or my favorites is there was a story from one of the kindergarten teachers that I worked with in the past where she said her students would see the desktop computer and touch the screen and try to like make things move and then come over, like tap her on the, the leg, be like, miss, miss, the computer doesn't work. <laughs> and she'd be like, what are you talking about? And then she'd go over and check it out and the student would go, see? And they're like trying to swipe. Oh, that's a problem. I, I can understand that. That's almost like teaching a child how to use a phone that has a cord in an old <laughs> house. <laughs> so I, I know from experience of talking with kindergarten teachers, while I've never taught anything lower than fifth grade, I know from stories I've heard that there's always been a kind of a pushback to the technology aspect of it. The Well, they need the hands-on time. They need the talking to each other time. Right. And all of that is absolutely true. And I think that's why as soon as this subject comes up, people hesitate because their first their first thought is, oh, my student is going to be sitting in front of a computer all day long. That is not what I want. Mm -hmm. That is not what school should be. And that's absolutely not what this is about. And it's not what this particular classroom in this article did. And um, I do have experience teaching kindergarten. And in my classroom, we did have a few computers. And so it wasn't unfamiliar to me when I read about the model that this classroom used, which was the rotation model of blended learning. And in this model, their students are only on computers for two cycles of 25 to 30 minutes at a time, which uh, is... I think plenty of time for a young student, but valuable time too. Their challenge was finding the right software and the learning aids that were appropriate for them. Yeah, I can see with all thinking about like the programs that we have, like I can see Brightspace being very difficult for a kindergartner because it's very text heavy with getting into it. So unless the but teacher... we can fix that, Mike. You and right. I can fix that and I'm... we will improve that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, with the, if a teacher is not comfortable with it, then they're not going to have their students use it either. So right. that's where some of the software problems come in. I I would be willing to bet that abcya.com is probably very popular. Um, it's a whole bunch of, like, games that are geared towards younger students, in particular kindergarten, first, second, third grade, at least from what I could tell. Um, so, but they're all very educational game-driven learning. Right. There's many, many fabulous sites out there um, for the kindergarten age group. I think, as you said, it's it's the teacher's comfort level, which is key, and uh, their, their growth mindset that they have as to the fact that they can learn more and more about how to use technology in the classroom. It's very easy to fall back on familiar websites and forget that they need to research more and more and try more and more. But it's it's totally doable. The other piece of this article that I thought was very interesting was their definitions of blended learning. I've heard that term forever, as I'm sure you have. And I know I had two different definitions in my mind. One 
is the one they described where the students are rotating within the classroom between a small group and the computers and other instruction. And that all made sense to me. I've also heard of blended learning scenarios where students would go home and do a lot of online learning and then spend a different type of learning within the classroom. So this gave a definition for each of the blended learning models. So I'll just go ahead and uh, read these different definitions so that our audience can have a better understanding of what that can be. The first one is face-to-face driver. In this one, the teacher decides when to implement online learning on a case-by-case basis to help supplement the curriculum. So I can see that one being very unit-oriented. And um, so like for a math class, for example, the teacher teaches a concept, the students practice the concept, but then the teacher also assigns work from something like Khan Academy or something like iReady, where this based upon what they had done in class already and like added that to it because there's usually a little lesson that goes along with it before you're just doing straight practice. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Mike. I think that makes perfect sense. Rotation, the one that we've already spoken about in this model, students move on a fixed schedule between online learning, which is most often self-paced, and traditional teacher instruction in a classroom. The next one is flex. In this model, the online platform dominates student instruction. On-site teachers provide support as needed through tutoring or small group sessions. The next one is online lab, where courses are taught entirely online. Labs rely heavily on software modules, but online teachers are also available. Self-blend is another model. In this one, most often seen in high schools across the country, the self-blend model lets students take online courses to enhance traditional classroom learning. And the last one is online driver. This program is designed so that an online platform delivers the entire curriculum. Check-ins with the teacher are often optional, though occasionally they are mandatory. So I had no idea there were Mm -hmm. so many definitions of blended learning. And I was very grateful to find this article because I've been to conferences and workshops where people are throwing out that term, Mm -hmm. blended learning, blended learning, assuming that everyone understands exactly what they're talking about. Right. And I know like even as you were going through the blended models, like the face-to-face one, the rotation, or a lot of times what we find it called here in Springfield is centers. Like those ones are the are the most common that we have, and then the next one, the flex, made me start to get a little nervous because it was less about the teacher leading and more about them assigning work to do, and then coming back together and helping students be more like a facilitator. So if I'm thinking basketball terms, I'm thinking like the flex is like the teacher is the point guard, and then the the online platform is the other four players who the point guard's trying to make sure the ball gets to. You're lucky my husband knows basketball and has <laughs> taught me what a point guard is. Then the next three make me a bit more nervous being a teacher. And I know that there's teachers out there who heard, especially with that last one, like optional check-ins with the teacher being like, oh, does that mean like I'm going to be replaced by a computer? But the reality is that's never going to i should not say never because it could always change but right 
for the time being, there will always be a need for teachers to teach. And there's no program out there that could do it by themselves. Even the online schools that are all online still have teachers who run them. So right, exactly. don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. <laughs> don't get nervous. Absolutely no reason to get nervous. I'm glad you mentioned the online schools because as we're always coming from a public school standpoint, but obviously this article was written to include all variations of education. Mm-hmm. So we know what will work in a public school system. Right. And this opens our mind a bit to some possibilities to expand still within the public school system. But as you said, some of these apply more to alternative types of education. All good, Mm -hmm. but never without that overall uh, teacher who's able to supervise the whole class. That's it for our hot takes. Coming up next, our interview with Amanda Gonzalez. Coming up next is our interview with Amanda Gonzalez over at SciTech, where we talk about technology pre-Brightspace to now and how things have changed over there over the past number of years that she's been teaching. So listen up. My name is Amanda Gonzalez. I am the science ILS at the High School of Science and Technology, and I've been in this district for 13 years. So with being in the district for 13 years, you must have seen a lot of technology come and go. Yes, quite a few. Can you describe some of those early years? Um, well, in the very beginning, the well, not very beginning of my teaching career, <laughs> um, the thing that I used the most was um, the overhead... Um, light projector where you put the transparencies on and that was pretty much the extent of the technology that I was using in the classroom Um, then um, I learned how to connect my computer to the TVs that were in the room so I was able to project PowerPoints and things like that um, to the TVs. So I have to ask about the TVs. Were they flat panel or were they those big, the big giant, box? The big boxes that, that we still have in the school, but, but we you don't can't use buy anywhere anymore. Yeah, unless no. you go to a thrift store or pawn shop. Yeah, so. it was pretty, pretty archaic at that point. <laughs> so coming out of the archaic ages, when <laughs> so was this school one of the pilot schools with iPads? Or, yes. So yeah. how did that go? So I loved having the iPads. I was actually one of the first teachers to have um, a classroom set of them. And that's really when my technology use in the classroom really started to amplify. There was a lot of um, projects that I tried to do, and um, the iPads worked really great for them. So with some of those projects, what would be probably your most successful one? Or Uh, maybe that students loved the most? Well, we've had different variations of the same project, which is um, I had AP biology students do um, ah, uh, music videos. And um, from there, we stemmed out from music videos to movie trailers or commercials or things based off what they decided they wanted to present. So it was an end of year project for them. So I had students talking about molecules in the air and they made it into a song and created a music video for it and they were able to edit everything right on the ipad do you still have any of these videos 
I wish, I wish I um, kind of lo- lost them as we got out of the Mac phase mm. and was not able to really copy them over. Wow. Yeah, it was, they were Our great. listeners would love to have seen that because this would be what, 2010? Um, yeah, it was about seven years ago. And um, I was just guessing. I had yeah. no clue. So. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It was about seven, about seven, eight years ago. Um, and we've had like, uh, you know, commercials where it was like, here, for the low cost of six oxygens, you can get yourself 36 ATP molecules. And <laughs> they would have to really like ham it up for the camera and, you know, really show like authentically mm-hmm. that they knew the material. So using the technology helped with making learning authentic for them. Yeah. Do you feel like when they went, these were AP kids, so Mm. it definitely helped when they went to take their AP tests, their SATs Mm. and the MCATs and all that? This was, you know, in the beginning stages and things like that. So I didn't want, and it was my first year teaching AP when I started doing this, um, that I was so concerned about the pacing and things like that, that I didn't implement as much technology as I wanted to mm-hmm. um, within the course. It was really after their exam that we played around with it. And then for the following years, I was more confident using more and more technology with my other classes. So as the years have gone on, would you say that you slowly built up your technology skills instead of trying everything at once? Yes. And that is something that I really, really had to get hold on because I like all these like new things and I would love to try them right away, but it was too much. And I had to like Mm -hmm. pick something that I really thought could be helpful for students and then build from there. All right. So moving from the iPad time period, Mm -hmm. uh, what was next technology wise? Um, well, I went into using Edmodo with all of my classes, and it was pretty much my first digital learning platform, I guess, that I could really like communicate with the students, communicate with parents, um, and really put information and things that I wanted my students to use technology-wise on Edmodo for them. So for our listeners who have no idea what Edmodo <laughs> is, what is Edmodo? So Edmodo, to me, was like a Facebook for... Um, students and teachers, but in a way that was a lot more appropriate. And um, you could add attachments and have group discussions and things like that within the program. I still use Edmodo, even though I've moved past using it in my classes, because it has a lot of great community support and mm-hmm. give a lot of ideas for technology. So Edmodo is similar to Brightspace. And so yeah. I'm going to take us all the way up to that <laughs> time period now. Um, when you first learned that Springfield had purchased a learning management system and it wasn't Edmodo, <laughs> um, what were your thoughts? Um, when I first heard about it, I thought it was a great idea. Um, I thought that, you know, it was going to be able to be a little more widespread for everybody um, and we'd have more support on it than Edmodo did. Um when I first started to use it, I was I was frustrated with it because it was not as what I would think as user-friendly as I thought Edmodo was. Um, it just took some time to, to really get used to the program and really see what it could do for me before I could really implement it in my classroom the way I wanted to. So were you an early adopter? Yes. Um, so with being an early adopter um, and with your history of taking things slowly... Hmm. Did you find one tool that you grasped pretty easily and said, this is the first thing I'm going to try to do with it? Well, the first thing I did with it was just put all my like 
notes that I would give my students on right away because I thought creating modules and uploading files was the easiest thing that I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really overwhelming in the beginning to see everything. Um, so I would, that was pretty much all that I would do was just put up notes, PowerPoints, maybe a Word document here and there, um, or even a link if I wanted the kids to go somewhere else and I didn't want them typing out the link. Um, that, that was probably the easiest in the very beginning. Yeah, I know that's, um, when I first started using Brightspace, because I was an early adopter too, that was my favorite thing, because it's like teaching fifth graders to type in a 30 key thing. And they don't understand underscore and... No. And so, with teaching high school, it's nice to hear that you guys had a similar problem. Yeah, yeah, so. it's and it's you're typing so fast. Sometimes you don't realize mm-hmm. what's going on, and you miss a couple of keys, or you misspell a word that you think you knew how to spell, and um, and then get very frustrated that you can't get onto the link. So I had a lot of mm-hmm. students, you know, always calling me over to help them type in a right an address where it probably would have been faster if I went to every single computer and typed it in for them <laughs> to begin with. Yeah, I even. I don't know about you, but I even tried using like the short URLs. Like I went to, yeah, tiny URL. Yeah, yeah, I did that, and like those are like ten, twelve characters, and that was even hard. Yeah, I would try to make so. these like really like easy, fun like ways of spelling, mm-hmm. so that the kids would know. And yeah, that was that was hard. Still. <laughs> so adding content was the first thing you did with Brightspace. Mm-hmm. How have you? What was like in your progression? What what came next? Quizzes came next. Um, once I found how quickly I got data back from the quizzes, um, it really kind of pushed me to keep mm-hmm. using them. Um, and But that was frustrating at the time as well because, again, it wasn't as easy to put in the quizzes as mm-hmm. I would have liked to. Um, you know, isn't that always the case when it comes mm-hmm. to technology? You always think it's going to be easier right. than, it, and, you know, than it actually is. But um, once I got a hang of it, it really simple for me to put them in now so we use it a lot yeah i know that was the frustrating thing was like all right i see how to do this i'm like there's got to be an easier way yeah there's got to be an easier way and it became easier the more i used it Mm -hmm. and again it was like taking the tool and going one thing at a time yeah so how do you think at this point how has this been helpful to the students in the classroom? Um, it's it's helpful because now they understand the process. They see it more in their classes. So um, they have all take the majority of their exams on Brightspace. Um, so they at least know how to log in. They know how to find their classes. Where in the beginning, that was one of the biggest struggles, was having them be able to find the information that you put in there. Um, they know that now. Now we're working on how to upload like mm-hmm. documents into drop boxes and mm-hmm. things like that that we're still struggling with, but again, it's still a process yeah. for them and for me. Would you say that it's helped like especially with having the content there for the students to reach at any time? Has it helped some of those students who would fall through the cracks being like, I'm not taking my homework home, I'm not gonna study my notes, like they write they write stuff down and then mm. it ends up in the trash at the end of class. Well, again, I think it's still a process for them to realize that this is stuff that's readily available for them at all mm-hmm. times. Um, I don't do makeup work. 
I do like grade recovery in a way mm-hmm. where it's not the work that you missed in class. It's something different that covers the same standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still getting used to the fact that when they're like, what did I miss? I'm like, it's on Brightspace. Right. You know, go ahead. It says, you know, standard 6.3. That's what we're mm-hmm. on. So go to standard 6.3 and, and do the assignment that's there. Um, so I think it's still, they're still getting out of that. I missed that paper. Can you give it to me? Mindset. Mm-hmm. And they're still, they're still struggling with that, but it's getting better where some kids are like, I went on Brightspace and I did that, the grade recovery, but is there anything else that I can do now? So some kids, yes, some kids, no. So with teaching science AP and mm-hmm. being an ILS, do you feel that with using Brightspace, has it helped prepare the students more for college since many colleges now use Blackboard or Brightspace? Because or, I know Winnick, which is just down the road, uses Brightspace. And I know there's another college in the area that also is in the Brightspace network, too. Well, I try to explain to the students that, you know, most of their work that they're going to see in college now is going to be on this kind of a platform, whether it's Brightspace or Blackboard or Moodle. Um, and that even if they don't go to college, that a lot of their online training for jobs mm-hmm. might also follow the similar format. Um, so they're starting to get a little more buy-in with that mm-hmm. um, and realizing that this is what they're going to have to go through. I haven't really seen the jump because I don't think that I've used it well enough mm-hmm. for former students to come back and say, you know, oh, I you know, I'm so much more prepared now because I had this experience in high school. I think they're, you know, these next couple of classes coming up will feel that way. Yeah, especially because this was our, I'm trying to remember the whole order of like the get start, like get started, get comfortable, get using it, something yeah. like that. So like this was our middle year of like really kind of pushing forward. So yeah. a lot more teachers have been using Brightspace. Have you gotten questions from other teachers about it? So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm considered the Brightspace expert in the school. (laughs) Um, not because I'm doing anything spectacular with it, but just because, or, you know, incredibly creative. Um, just that I, I know how to figure out the logistics of it. Mm -hmm. And since I'm an ILS, I have a lot of teachers coming with me for PD and things like that. And they ask, you know, I've been working with one teacher specifically for the past month and a half now to really build up a, her course. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she's she's struggling with it, but she really is invested in trying to, to use it. Yeah. I know for me, it was all about this whole ease thing. Like, mm-hmm. it made doing a lot of things easier. Because, like, Dropbox was one of the first tools I learned. Because I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't want to take papers home anymore. This would be fantastic. <laughs> Especially because with the Brightspace app, yeah. you can actually grade it, like, on your phone. Yeah. Which is awesome. And that's something that we're going to work on getting more people to knowledge of. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just like it made my job as a teacher easier because it took away time. And so like from the um, adoption year Mm -hmm. to that following year, like I copied over a lot of the stuff that I had done that was good. Yeah. And so it made my job easier. Have you actually taken the time and copied stuff over year to year? Yeah, I have done that. Or have you uploaded it every time? No, no, I have been copying it over. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to um, help my teachers with is understanding that they can do all this work now and that it saves them time later. So Mm -hmm. it's really hard in the beginning, but they can definitely use it 
again and again. Um, we actually, for our science PLC, mm-hmm. um, we make each other co-teachers in our classrooms so we can share content throughout all the biology teachers. So um, if someone's making a quiz in an environmental science class or a biology class, the other teachers have access to it and they can mm-hmm. pull it into their own courses. That's fantastic. That sounds like a lot of collaboration is happening. Yeah, we even have our own science PLC course on Brightspace mm-hmm. where um, a lot of our common assessments are in so that like I will develop or mm-hmm. I will help develop and write those assessments and then the teachers are able to go into that course and pull them from it. So now that takes us up to the future, and what are some of your hopes with technology in the classroom, not just with Brightspace, but other things that you may be using, or that you're really excited to like really get other teachers to be using? Well, I've just discovered um, PowerPoint Mix, mm-hmm. so the tab on, on there where it's not necessarily on PowerPoint, it's something you have to download mm-hmm. in, um, and I just actually made my first video um, teaching teachers how to import um, YouTube videos into Brightspace without having the kids go onto YouTube. So like downloading those videos. I'm giving a big thumbs up right now because that's the best way to do it. Yeah. So they're downloading those videos onto their computer and uploading it into Brightspace Um, because a lot of teachers didn't realize that the kids' videos would be blocked if they're watching them in class. Um, So I used the PowerPoint mix to show them how to actually download everything. And I think that's what I'm going to be doing for my classes now when I want them to do online simulations and Mm -hmm. things like that is model it through a video like that, upload it to Mm -hmm. um, Brightspace and then have them watch um, the video so that way they can see the modeling, whether at home or in the class or if I'm out. Being an ILS, sometimes I'm not in the classroom as much as I would like with those students. So they now have that access without me being having, having to be there. I love Microsoft Mix. Like, that was one of the things that when I got the position that I'm in now, like I took time and because I didn't have any projects handed to me yet, uh, I went through all the training materials that Microsoft has and I'm like an MIE, whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a really fantastic tool that we need yeah. to really be sharing. And so I'm glad to hear that you're using it. And Yeah, we're and, you know, I've been trying to show teachers how to do it. But again, it's kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that I really want to get better at using. Right now, all I know is how to make that video. It took me a while to, like, it's a two-minute video that probably took me about two hours <laughs> to do because I had to stop recording, change it. But now that I know how to do it, it's probably going to take me a lot faster. Awesome. And you can even put quiz questions in there. Yeah. Like checks for understanding and all of that. So in thinking, so we're wrapping up our time mm-hmm. here. Um, in thinking about what, if you had uh, the room sometime in July, because I feel like when I was hired, this was the room I came to to hear a lot of new hire stuff. Yeah. Like if you had the opportunity to stand in front of all the new hires in the district and give them some words of wisdom using technology in the classroom. What do you think that would be? Start small and don't get discouraged. Um, and then eventually you'll start being more comfortable in everything and you'll you'll see the value in it. Um, but don't feel like you have to tackle everything at once. 
because that that's when it becomes overwhelming and that's when you get discouraged about what you're using and not want to use it um and as soon you'll soon you'll be using every every program mm-hmm. out there and finding new ones to share with teachers and and you'll be a technology expert in your school whether you want to be or not <laughs> well thank you for your time i know that we're in the middle of your day and yeah no problem. One of the interesting things that Amanda talked about was how technology has changed over time. Going from using the overhead projectors to with the transparencies, which she still has teachers who were like, still wanted them, to the Elmos, to the smart boards, from being part of the iPad project to Brightspace now. She's just had a lot of experience using different technologies throughout the district. And as a wealth of information, I'm sure if you, especially if you work at SciTech, you should get in contact with her and find out more and get some more help with what you're doing. This week, our question of the week is all about long-term projects or bigger projects. So when we did NaNoWriMo, or when I did it, I should say, like that was a month-long project. What are some other project-based learning projects that you guys have done that have taken up multiple time? We'd love to hear about it. If you've got pictures, we'd love to share them. Uh, If you've got videos, we'd love to link to them so that um, we can share out all the amazing things that you guys are doing already. So if you like what you read in the blog or you like what you hear in the podcast, please leave us some comments in our comment section at Spreaker.com for the podcast, the blog, underneath the blog post, or leave us some feedback on iTunes. This week, we should be going up on Stitcher. We're also available on YouTube, SoundCloud. I'm Mike Thomas, and Suzanne Zargis was with us. We'll see you next week.